You're listening to the Belfer Center's Office Hours. Watch highlights from this and other Office Hours interviews on YouTube at youtube.com slash belfercenter. Arup sat down with Calder Walton, the author of Empire of Secrets, British Intelligence, the Cold War, and the Twilight of Empire. He is also an Ernest May Fellow in History and Policy with the Belfer Center's International Security Program. Now, you started life professional life as a lawyer, as a barrister, as they call it in the UK. Yeah. Uh, what drew you to intelligence and did you, do you just love secrets? Yeah, exactly. I'm obsessed with uh, secrets. It's yeah. like a sort of moth, have, moth yeah. to a flame, right? Uh, no, actually I was studying uh, intelligence history before I became a barrister. Um, and it was a, uh, just a matter of being at the right place at the right time. Um, I was interested in intelligence history, I'd, written, I'd read lots of books by my PhD supervisor about the KGB and so on. Mm. And then the day that I was starting my master's at Cambridge, um, my supervisor became the authorized official historian of MI5 and offered me an opportunity I couldn't uh, refuse, which was to do a couple of days a week part-time research at MI5 headquarters. The, the security service MI5 um, it has the long, is the longest continuing security service in the world and has probably the most complete intelligence archive of any intelligence service in the world. Um, and it's open. And it's, no, it's completely classified. But they are declassifying records on a rolling basis a couple times a year. Um, but they wanted to write their official history to come out in 2009 for their 100-year centenary history. Wow. And to do that, they needed a historian and he needed research But assistance. now that history would be classified. No, it's published. Oh, so that is, published. that is So it's called Defend, Defend, Defense of the Realm or over here Defend the Realm. And it was the sort of the inner secrets of MI5, um, as much as we could say, yeah. um, published um, in 2009. But it's different. MI5 is different from MI6 that way. That's right. Is that right? So That's right. W- w- what's the difference and in, in, in why does one release cl- uh, classified information or yeah. declassified information? Well, you've, you've, you've asked a really good question. And I think the people in MI6 might have some some difficult um, questions put to them about that. Um, Because, well, MI5, think of it as broadly FBI and CIA. One is concerned with domestic security intelligence and one is foreign intelligence or espionage. And MI6, or SIS as they call it, is an espionage service, so it's recruiting agents abroad. And MI5 is much more concerned with domestic. But actually what we found out when we're doing the history is that it was... um, domestic within the whole of the British Empire. So in the 20th century, yeah. that, it's not just Britain and the UK, right. but it um, makes a big difference. So liaison in India, Southeast yeah. Asia, all over Africa, West Indies, um, all over the world, they had liaison and responsibilities. And so, so why does the, I mean, because in the United States, the CIA yeah. does, I mean, it, it does keep things classified, but it declassifies. Yeah. And why does the MI6 want to keep it well, I think that there's conceptually something. I mean, I think things are changing. I mean, we, we should start off by saying this is like compared to where we were just 20, 30 years ago. This is this is extraordinary. The fact that these agencies even exist. Mm-hmm. I mean, for most of the 20th century, they didn't exist. It was just a non avowed. Ah, I see. So, you know, London buses would drive past um, MI5 and say all off for MI5. But it was an official secret. So nobody, nobody would um, talk about it. Interesting. And so they didn't exist in the history books. They yeah. didn't exist. You know, there was a non avowed. Uh, non-officially recognized agencies, even though we and then, now see they were busy, of course, yeah, <laughs> throughout the 20th century. And then, then one day somebody was just like, we should... Well, it was actually thanks to, um, I mean, it's a good old historian, it was Sir Stephen Lander, who was head of MI5 in the late 1990s, who was a Cambridge PhD in medieval history. And he said, you know what, we're sitting on an archive of really important historical um, records. And it's just crazy that this isn't um, out there, for good and bad, um, yeah. you know, use and abuse of intelligence. And it would also help 
the public un understand what intelligence does and yeah. uh, what it can't do, what it can do. So he started to, to um, authorize the, um, the release of records. So yeah. it's been about releases. There are about, I think, 5,000 records now, multi-volume, out in the, the public domain now um, in the National Archives wow. in the UK. And then this centenary history as wow. well. So, do you have a favorite secret? Well, I, I, I keep coming back to the um, the Second World War. I think that the stories about the Second World War, you just can't. Um, the deception operations, yeah. um, the, the Cambridge um, Five, that whole the scene. Cambridge spies. I yeah. mean, how Soviet intelligence penetrated British intelligence during the war. So British and the U.S. were trying to fight the Germans, and, right. and the Soviet Union was much more obsessed about um, their allies. Yeah. During this is during the during war. the Second World War. Wow. Yeah. So the, 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 there was an open door, basically, yeah. um, and the Soviets ex exploited it. And what, what, like, what, are, what did they do? Well, um, they managed to get one person, um, probably the most successful agent they had, Kim Philby, um, into MI6. And at one point, well, he became the head of the department in, in MI6 that was dealing with Soviet counter-espionage. That's pretty successful. That's quite successful. Yeah. And then in the post-war years, he nearly became head of MI6. Now, Kim Philby, he was one of the, the Cambridge Five, or That's he was right. part of yeah. that group. There was the, Don the Mc, McLean, or yeah. there were a few of those. McLean, Burgess, yeah. Blunt, and we now know Cairn Cross as well. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, but they had these, so they were just like recruiting at universities for people who were... That's right. The KGB had um, talent um, spotters at, at um, Cambridge and other universities. Yeah. And there's a sort of... Uh, um, a bit of a uh, thing people say, well, maybe there was an Oxford spy ring as well, but they were just more successful. They yeah. didn't get caught. <laughs> and, we, and there are actually, it's, it's in, there are some records now saying, showing that the KGB was also active at Oxford. Yeah. Why, why wouldn't they be? You yeah. know, it's not just going to be Cambridge. And so was, was the UK just, the UK wasn't concerned, or the UK was, was looking at this as well. It wasn't, yeah, um, they, were. they knew that they were open and vulnerable to, That's right. um, they had communist student groups and things like that, right? Precisely. And I mean, all the way through the, as we now call it, the pre-war years, mm. the main focus was on the Soviet Union. And there was sort of this um, surging threat of fascism and Nazism, but right. it was actually predominantly the communist threat. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, uh, when the Second World War broke out, the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany were allied. That's right. Or they had a pact. So they, they had, had a pact. pact. Yeah, right. they had a non-aggression pact. Mm. So actually, they were, uh, the British intelligence was desperately trying to monitor what was going mm. on. But they were just looking in the wrong places. And with hindsight, it's all so clear. But um, at yeah. the time, it just seemed um, that there, there wasn't enough information to go on. Um, so yeah. Do you think, do you think the Soviets uh, and the Russians today are more successful at recruiting foreign agents than the US and UK are? I mean, it's difficult to say today. But certainly, historically, the, 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 the great achievements in intelligence history seem to be um, seem to have been done by so, the Russians. And the why? Soviets. Why is that? I think it's just, it, I mean, it goes right back. And this yeah. is one of the things that I'm, I'm um, going to be trying to bring out in this big new history that I'm writing, uh, the Cambridge history of espionage and intelligence, is actually for Russia, this isn't a sort of a Cold War aberration, but this goes right back uh, to the medieval period about spying and about intelligence that gathering. That long ago. Oh, yeah, yeah and even, even longer. Um, and so, and actually, after the collapse of the Soviet Union in the mid 1990s, the um, the head of the Russian, new Russian Foreign Intelligence Service, Primakov, um, got a um, uh, uh, authorized the history to look back, not just the Soviet KGB history, but he went all the way back to Ivan the Terrible, and he said mm -hmm. there's a straightforward continuity between Russian intelligence in the um, 16th century all the way through through the Bolshevik period, through the communist period, 
to the present day. And those are and the, the, that continuity. Those are norms. Those are rules. Those are practices, tactics, yeah, tactics, surveillance. It's about turning people. It's about gathering compromising material over people. Compromat. So when we in the West sort of plunged rather inexperienced, inexperiencedly into this game of uh, intelligence in the 20th century, we're facing, uh, I think it's safe to say, oh. um, countries that have done this um, for centuries. So we've got some pretty tough... Um, America didn't have a foreign intelligence gathering service until after the Second World War. Right, 47. Was this yeah. the establishment of the CIA? Yeah, yeah. A, peacetime, a peacetime dedicated intelligence. It beggars belief, but that's the case. And so so you see, uh, do you see Russia's actions today mm. as part of that continuity, uh, as, as, as something almost predictable? Yeah, I think that, it, I, I think that it's entirely unsurprising that uh, Russia has attempted to interfere in U.S. Uh, presidential elections. They did. They did it in the 1960s. They did it in the 70s and in the 80s. Um, it appears. I mean, we'll wait to see what Robert Mueller come, comes comes back with in his, in his report. But it appears that they were simply more successful using cyber means today than they had been in the past. Um, trying to. They certainly tried to gather compromising material over Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. They tried to incite rallies against Reagan. They didn't work. But it looks like, from my perspective, historical perspective, it looks like what they've done using cyber mm. is to um, be able to do what they didn't do in, in, in the past. Well, and, this is, and this isn't just us saying, oh, there's continuity. Yeah. It's that the SVR today actually embraces the their SVR. history. The yeah. SVR is Russia's foreign intelligence okay, service. That's right. yeah. and, they actually, and the FSB, they, they embrace their past and they, they are learning from their own KGB history. Really? So and why they, would they not? I mean, look at Putin. It's an institution. Yeah. So you and and so it's not really Putin that we should be thinking about. It's this culture and history of. It, it is, but yeah. it's Putin. Putin adopts that culture and history, and he's part of it. I mean, he comes from it. He was a KGB officer. Yeah. So the idea that we can just suddenly get along with him, I think, is sort of turning your your. Yeah, turning, making yourself blind to the history, the baggage that yeah. that comes with. It's not possible, but we've got some serious challenges ahead of us. And what do they do? Uh, what What are the sort of tactics? How do you get? Well, there's all sorts of intelligence gathering. Yeah. Uh, the the most the most fun are the human yeah. intelligence. Human intelligence. That's right. How do you get agents? Well, here's an example. Agents. Okay. Um, here's a good example. So I just interviewed recently the former head of um, the Czech intelligence deception. Um, uh, department. So that's the Czech intelligence service in the Eastern Bloc that was working for the KGB. And he's now retired and he lives up the coast in Massachusetts. And um, he's a painter in his spare time. And he told me, and he defected to the US in the 1960s, and he told me that his first uh, job when he joined the STB, the Czech intelligence service, working for the Moscow, was to open a bordello, as he called it, in East Germany. Um, and he would get Western diplomats and Western businessmen to come in and, and um, have a good time yeah. and sit behind the, 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 the mirror and take pictures. And then this would be classic compromising material, compromat. So then they would present this to the people oh. and they would get them um, hook, line, So it wasn't always that people had communist sym- sympathies, as is often thought Ca- of with the Cambridge Five. Yeah, exactly. It's also they would get them to do certain things that's right. um, and uh, purposefully. That's right. I mean, this is now this comes back to Trump in many ways. It, it, it does. does and, that... and so the idea, I mean, who knows if there is actually compromising material on right. Trump, but the idea that the FSB or the S- SVR, the mm-hmm. Russian intelligence service of today, would be doing that is not surprising. At all. There, there would be, I mean, this is a, there's a long history of exactly that, going right back to the, the Bolshevik re- revolution about ensnaring people mm-hmm. Um, using compromising material to blackmail them and to do them do things for for 
um, Moscow's advantage. Interesting. So wow. that's not to say, of course, I mean, there is a, a live debate, as you're probably aware today, about um, what Western powers have done that is similar. I mean, you know, we'd be, we'd be yeah. naive to say that Britain and America haven't done so. Right. They, they, yeah, the U.S. and in Britain have uh, meddled in, in elections That's and have right. done so for decades. That's and right. so, who are we to say this is wrong? That's right. Um, I, I think that they, I think that the people from um, British and U.S. intelligence would be quick to point out that they were um, not always successfully, but at least attempting to, to do so in the in the in the cause of democracy. Um, and I think that there's also something fundamentally different about comparing the KGB to MI6 and CIA. The KGB yeah. instigated the, the, the greatest peacetime repression in modern European history. They killed probably more people than, than any other intelligence service in history. Th that, see, that I can take, but the first thing about in, for, for the, in the name of democracy, yeah. to me that feels, I, well, I, I don't I, know. I, like, I, I agree, I mean, yeah. the jury's out. And you know, now the exciting thing about working on this, this, this subject is that these archives are opening up and yeah. we can now see you know, well, we we're, we're trying to export democracy, and it's like yeah. we look at the records, and it's like, well, that looks a bit more sordid on the ground than it right. does with these, In, these sort yeah. of high high. Um, uh, convoluted ideas. It seemed of, more that the United States was more interested in amity that's with, right. with other countries rather than uh, promoting democracy at certain moments. Yeah, I think that the, the way I'd look about look at it is the U.S. and Britain, often working very closely together, were were that the, the main objective strategic was anti-communism yeah. in whichever country. That's right. So supporting regimes that were just emphatically anti-communist, yeah. and whether that meant that they were authoritarian, well, sometimes that was the case. I see. Um, but certainly, Britain and America did meddle in, in um, right, Iran, elections. Chile, etc. Right. Yeah, of course. Um, so this is, I think, what I'm trying to do with the the history I'm doing here is to actually have a grown up public debate about that. That it is just you know that you some of the stuff you read in the news today about like can't believe Russia has interfered in a um, in a presidential election. Right. Well, first of all, we don't know the history of so called. Russian active measures. They've been doing it for, for active measures, meaning covert action. That's yes. what Russia calls covert action. Okay. We would call we would call covert action, um, and that that Russia has been doing, attempting to do it in the U.S. and other countries for right. decades. Yeah, but also we need to have a grown-up conversation. Well, one of the first things that the CIA CIA did after being set up in 1947 was to interfere in the Italian elections mm. in 1948. Time to have a really sort of honest, open debate. And what this. do we learn from this? Well, unfortunately, that the, the democracies um, do get involved in some pretty um, dirty tricks, yeah. and the CIA was definitely involved in some dirty tricks in in, in the um, Italian elections in 1948. What other skeletons are also in the CIA um, closet? Closet, um, we don't know. Hopefully, we'll find out. You know, as these documents come out more and more. But but to but uh, to the other point about Russia that they've been yeah. doing it for a long time. How do we? How do we learn from that? Do we just get better at being suspicious about them? Do we yeah. actually have tactics to yeah. do fight fire with fire? Yeah, well, it's not helped, I think, by, well, I think that there are some some really clear analogies with, with things that have happened in the Cold War about dealing with um, Russian covert action or disinformation, mm. what we'd call fake news. Mm. So Britain and the US um, set up um, information agencies, propaganda, uh, mm. counter-Russian propaganda agencies, uh, to deal with all of these forgeries that yeah. were coming out of um, um, the, the, from the KGB that they were slipping into. These like pamphlets and newspapers pamphlets, and things? Yeah, things like saying that the American government created the AIDS virus, mm -hmm. and that they were butchering children in Central America in order to, um, to harvest the body parts. Wow. The JFK assassination, that went on for decades. Uh, the KGB in an internal memo. They feed these conspiracy theories. They, 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 they tap into something. Yeah. This is what um, you learn when you look at Russian disinformation. 
You can't, you can't create, they, they, they're quite clear, you can't create the big lie out of nothing. There needs to be an existing sentiment, some sort of anti-Americanism. And um, then, you, then you, you essentially grab hold of that and put it in a place where it's going to get much more airtime. So slipping it into a pro-communist newspaper, and then, the pro, then other newspapers wow. can then pick it up, um, but, but leave out the important bit that actually this was um, the, the authenticity of the underlying document has not been um, verified. verified. So then it just, in, in using our language, it would go viral. So in the 1960s, the CIA stood up in front of um, Congress and identified 32 different forgeries um, that they, they, they'd identified from the KGB. And they're all, they're all sort of portraying America as the aggressor, mm. um, that um, America is imperialist. Well, what are they trying to do? They're trying to um, instigate um, distrust in the American public, in their government. So um, sowing the seeds of uh, conspiracy. We can't trust our government. And they're trying to, to, this is from the 1950s onwards, they're trying to undermine uh, Western alliances like yeah, NATO. It sounds NATO. so familiar. I can't imagine yeah. where I've heard that before. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and yeah. so there, and are, there are echoes here well, that are so just what, staring you in the face. Well, yeah. when, the, when the commander-in-chief, I mean, when the president of the United States does not believe his own intelligence and distrust and feeds the conspiracy theories. That's right. Have, have they re is that the kind of holy grail? I think so. As far I mean, it's, I, I just imagine the champagne must be flowing in the Kremlin every single day yeah. because this is beyond anything that they could have ever thought of in the Cold War. Um, this is, you know, uh, this is a, we've got a commander in chief, as you said, who who rates Putin's word apparently over his own intelligence community. Yeah. And so, in terms of um, intelligence history, yeah. I've never seen anything like this. So it's an exciting time to be to be researching this. How old is espionage and in intelligence? Very old, and yeah. um, uh, it goes right back uh, to the Bible. Uh, if not, um, you know, go spy out the land. I think God was spying. Yeah, God was spying. So mm -hmm. uh, this goes right back, and um, we are uh, my my um, colleague and I, Christopher Andrew, and I are editing the new Cambridge History of Espionage and Intelligence, and it's a three-volume project, and it starts off in the ancient world, and it goes all the way through the medieval period, through the early modern to the present day. St starts in the ancient world. Yeah. So, so ancient the ancient Egypt. Egyptians, yep, Romans, precisely. they were... Th they were using espionage, and they were gathering, and they were gathering um, intelligence. Um, and one of the big narrative things that we're making in, these, in this volume is that different cultures and different regimes and different societies had this, made the same discoveries about intelligence and then it was forgotten, and there wasn't this transmission of ideas. Oh. So actually, so people discovered the same thing. The ancient Islamic cultures um, were hundreds of years um, ahead of Europe at the time. People think that Romans were good at, I mean, it was the ancient um, Islamic caliphates that in terms of code breaking, their codes were literally centuries ahead of everybody else. I mean, in terms of hieroglyphics and yeah. things? Yeah, well, in terms of actually um, underlying ability to be able to write codes and crack codes. And then it was actually what was interesting then, Europe caught up in the Renaissance. Um, we can now see they discovered, without actually actively looking back at what the ancient Islamic cultures were doing. Yeah. Um, and they were like, oh, this is a great code. And it's like, well, that had actually already been um, discovered uh, <laughs> 700 years before. Yeah. So if somebody had actually written down and said, this is uh, probably quite a good way to write a code, and this is what we might want to learn about breaking codes, and this is how you pass over sensitive information. Yeah. Um, nobody did that. Yeah. So uh, I think in terms of um, both informing our understanding of history, because yeah. it's generally missing, you know, people have little anecdotes about mm -hmm. intelligence, but it's not really sort of taken seriously. But also a sort of public policy of um, yeah. 
this is the, the impact of, um, this is what intelligence can do, this is what it has done, and this is what we can learn. That's, that's, my, that's my aim with this big project. You're working on this, you're co-editing this three-volume set, 90 yeah. chapters on the history of, Cambridge history of intelligence and, and espionage. That's right. Um, and, and, and of course, it's, it's a history, but yeah. in doing so, you're making an argument and, and by how you're separating the volumes. Yeah. The, the turning points you've mentioned are the Renaissance and World War II. That's right, World War I, I think. Is oh, World War I, excuse yeah, me. Yeah, I think that that's sort of the massive watershed in terms of... Um, and why those yeah. two Why those two moments? Well, I think, as I said, I think that the, the Renaissance fits quite nicely in terms of this is when Europe um, discovers many of the things that had already been discovered before. Yeah. And that sort of seems like a natural sort of... Um, and it went ahead. It, it, yeah, it, it took it, off. Precisely, that's okay. right. And then um, other cultures um, that had been previously... Um, you know, pioneering intelligence, ancient China, for example, um, um, certainly weren't as advanced in the 16th, 17th, 18th century as mm -hmm. Europe was um, in terms of code breaking um, and other forms of intelligence gathering. And then, but then really the big watershed moment is with the First World War and it's with um, total warfare where, all, where countries were fighting, throwing all their resources at fighting a war. And that meant uh, surveillance of populations in a way that it had never been done before. Really? And that's when they built these big, bigger bureaucracies that's that right. didn't big, exist. Big, big, big um, bureaucracies, um, massive forms of interception of communications, um, mm -hmm. new technologies that were allowing that. Um, so yeah, that was as we as we see it another big yeah. watershed. And then I think that um, then what we're seeing at the moment with the cyber digital yeah. revolution is is a. We, we can't even imagine where this is going to go, Really, but um, I think that it's going to be profound. D then, you know, g given that all these moments, they don't seem to hinge exactly on specific heads of state. It makes me wonder, is Trump, you know, in this era of Trump, yeah. where he does distrust his intelligence community, and there yeah. is great fear that that'll have long-term effects, yeah. will it, or are these things much bigger than a single commander-in-chief? I'd like to think that it. I'd like to think that it won't uh, make that much of a difference. But I, I'm, I am profoundly worried about the damage that he's doing and the public um, distrust that he's whipped up in institutions that have been a bedrock of American democracy for um, you know decades, mm. generations. Um, so I think that what he's unleashed in terms of post-fact, post-truth. Mm that actually there's no such thing as even a fact anymore. Right. I mean, in the Cold War, we never had to deal with that. There were facts, you know, there was a grand narrative. Right. What does America stand when for? When Rudy say facts aren't yeah. fact, right? Yeah. I mean, it's this right. is their alternative facts. This right. is Orwellian. Right. It's absolutely extraordinary. So um, I'm, I'm... Where does that lead us, though? What, 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 what? I think this is where, um, unfortunately, historians sort of... <laughs> Throw their hands up? <laughs> yeah, and say, well, now, now maybe we need some sort of social scientists or yeah. psychologists public psychologists, because I don't know. I mean, we are, we are witnessing, you know, in terms of the means of communication, it's similar, or it, I'm not the first person to say this, but it's, it's like the development of the printing press mm. um, in the early modern mm -hmm. period. And, and look what that unleashed in terms of the transmission of ideas and the, the civil wars that that mm. created in Europe. And I think that the digital revolution will have a similar sort of impact, social dislocation mm. um, in ways that are difficult yeah. to, to predict. I think that um, we, as historians, we can safely say that there are. We need to be cautious because of um, problems in the past like yeah. this about just 
yeah. not trusting our institutions. Well, you've related it to the Cold yeah. War, certain I, things. Yeah. So what, what do we what do we draw from those historical analogies and episodes? Well, to I think yeah. Well, I was recently reading um, a memoirs of a Soviet defector, KGB defector, and they asked them exactly this question in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. They said, "Well, what what advice do you have for the American public in terms of dealing with?" Um, disinformation coming out of the, the Kremlin. Um, and he said, I, I just think that the most important thing is to read and read and read and read editorial newspapers and to um, read across a variety of different news sources so that you get a, um, um, a broad sort of um, yeah. compass. And then he also um, said, you know, in terms of ways of dealing with it, um, he said the most important thing is for America not to sort of have a polemic because that won't work, but just to nail down facts and to say this is not true what the, the, the Moscow is saying or another country is saying. Um, that, that's, that, isn't, that is not accurate. That's not a fact. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, as we already said, now we seem to be in a position where um, there aren't facts. Right. So I mean, that's, it, it, that's it, it, pretty bleak. It is bleak, and it, and it feels that if you know if we're talking about asking people to read, yeah, right, which anyway people are reluctant to do, but then yeah. also to read multiple sources, that seems to me a generational uh, struggle. I think that you're seems right. Seems to me that even if Trump is not reelected in 2020, that the problem won't fix itself I think uh, immediately. The, I think you're absolutely right, uh, Eric. I think that the, the the demons that have been unleashed are is a generational struggle, mm-hmm. and I think that um, looking at intelligence history, there's only so much that can really be um, that a, that a covert agency of any mm-hmm. kind can can help with in, in this kind of generational. Yeah. This is this is a sort of societal effort, um, and I think that it will require things like. Um, education starting yeah. very early on in schools about what is yeah. fake, what is fact, what yeah. is fiction. How do you separate um, nonsense from reality? Well, Carl, thank you so much for joining no, thank us. Thank you for having me. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, yeah great. appreciate it. Office Hours was produced by the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. 